Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. And today we are going to expand your knowledge base. We're going to take this conversation a little bit further out in the housing world to help you better understand the landscape of housing in 2023. We are often here talking about the single family residential market of new and existing home sales. Sometimes we venture to multifamily, but today we venture to manufactured housing and learn about how one operator is building a business that really improves communities and brings a really affordable option to the housing market. Our guest today is Robbie Pratt, the CEO and co-founder of Haven Park Communities. Robbie brings a lot of knowledge that frankly, I, I just didn't have on the landscape of the manufactured housing ecosystem. We learn about the like what percent of the market is manufactured versus the stick build or concrete block built inventory that we talk about every day and the differences between modular and manufactured and some of the terminology that we're, we're hearing out there, like industrialized and factory built housing. Robbie walks us through the types of communities that he's investing in and helping build, um, but also talks us through the considerations from a consumer perspective. So how these manufactured homes appreciate over time, the useful life, and the financing options. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Robbie Pratt, co-founder and CEO of Haven Park Communities. Hey, Robbie, welcome to Housing News. Hey, thank you. Great to be here. So, Robbie, I'm thrilled to have you as a guest today. The The focus in the housing industry has been on a lot of things in the last year, uh, interest rates, inventory, tech, innovation. Um, but one of the topics that keeps popping up is is affordability. And folks across the housing industry are are looking for answers to inventory problems and affordability problems. And the, the topic of, uh, the topic of manufactured housing ke- keeps coming up. So I'm, I'm excited to have you learn more about your business, Haven Park, and some of the, the knowledge and, and thesis that you, you bring to the housing market. Well, great. I'm, you know, I'm excited to be here today. And, and I think there's a, you know, it, it is a, a pressing problem, a growing problem. And, uh, and I think manufactured housing has uh, has a pretty elegant solution. So excited to to kind of share some of some of the things we're seeing, some of the dynamics we're seeing in the space, and 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 perhaps where it could uh, could uh, solve a lot of the issues we're facing here. So let's let's start by kind of laying the laying the groundwork and and talking about the the new home construction ecosystem. And uh, and and I don't know if you're you know armed with exact numbers, but in gen- in general terms, like kind of what's the percentage of homes that are that are stick built frame houses or or um or concrete block kind of versus the industrialized or or factory built housing ecosystem? Well, certainly the vast majority. You know, there the there's different numbers out there. Um, the most commonly cited number is about 20, 20 million. Uh, units of manufactured housing in America today. That's all units, existing inventory and and stuff coming to the market now. Okay. Correct. Now, if you go back to the, going back to the seventies, there was a steady progression of uh, uh, new starts or we call in our industry, we call it shipped units, you know, factory built homes that were shipped. It was a steady incline or, or increase year over year from the 70s clear to about uh, almost the year 2000, the late 90s. And in that point, it's, you know, we, we were at uh, daily ship or excuse me, annual shipments or 
you know, in vernacular of, of, of single family uh, annual starts of 400,000 units. So it was, you know, it was pretty high volume. There was a, just like the single family housing, uh, single family sector experienced uh, really a crisis of, of, of loans, of, of uh, credit. Uh, there was a chattel crisis as well. And so we saw that number drop, it plummeted from about 400,000 down to about 40,000. And, and then really has slowly been building its way back up. We're back up at about 100,000 units shipped, a little over 100,000 a year. Uh, but, but it's still really just a shadow of its former self uh, of what, what the potential is uh, to, to be able to bring new units uh, you know, to market. So, Robbie, what was the, the timing of that peak to trough change in annual production volume in the manufactured housing space? Uh, trough was probably right around that 2005, 2006 mark. And then there was kind of a, a steady, very, very slow um, increase again. Uh, and then that, that picked up really recently. Really, it was 2016, 17, you start to, saw, to see a pretty, pretty good increase. Um, and then it's, it, it's been, uh, greatly accelerated through COVID as well. So the, the timing of that, that kind of, uh, downward trajectory of production, it kind of sounds like it might correlate to the, the heydays of the single family days and the, the subprime credit was, was the single family market influencing demand on the manufacturer side, or was there another driver of the, in, that industry trend? It certainly was an, inf- an impact. Um, you know, the, you talk to operators who had you know large scale operations during those years, and they'll tell you that you know there were people coming in that were making you know twenty five thirty thousand dollars a year. You know, they had their single wide, they're making their payment on it, and they just kind of you know throw the keys in the title there and say, "Hey, I got a loan for, I got approved for you know a hundred and seventy five thousand uh, dollar you know brick home," you know. Three, three miles away and, and, and they would turn in the title and, and that was it. Right. So there, there were, uh, there, that certainly, um, certainly when you had such loose credit, uh, in the single family, uh, it, it definitely loose underwriting, it definitely hurt manufactured housing in those years. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I was, um, I was out at the, the California MBA event recently and I was talking to a friend who's working on, pulling together an event in Detroit to showcase manufactured housing. And he was telling me a little bit about the the vernacular and like, and the difference between manufactured and modular and how a lot of folks in the industry are using the terms industrialized or, or factory built. What should we better understand about the different types of, of manufactured inventory in, in 2023? Well, I think you could, you could probably classify them into two, two main subgroups. Um, people talk about modular You'll hear modular and you'll hear manufactured housing. At the end of the day, they're very close relatives. Um, you do have some slight technical differences between the two. Probably the biggest difference, though, is that modular housing typically, this isn't always the case, it's typically installed on a permanent foundation, uh, permanent concrete foundation. Uh, whereas manufactured housing, again, this is typically not always, there are some exceptions, but manufactured homes are typically um, installed in such a way that they can be moved. They typically are not moved, but they can be moved. 
Um, and, and so the, there's certainly, um, in both cases, there are, you know, very stringent regulation in, in many cases in a lot of states for manufactured housing. It's overseen at a federal level, level through HUD. Um, if HUD is not overseen it, typically the states will have their own uh, set of requirements. But um, really, it comes down to uh, the way that I would say th- those are the two branches, modular and, and manufactured. And is there, okay, so does, I've also heard construction folks talk about like some of the the factory built components that are still like assembled on site. So like a, a step between modular and, and stick built, is that, would you consider that a close relative as well? Or is that a totally different part of the ecosystem? Yeah, I think in, in our world where you have construction that, that occurs on site, it, it's, it's typically in the modular world, it's going to be around the you know, the actual um, foundation and the actual installation and fi- fixing that to the real estate on the manufactured, ha- on the manufacturer side, you know, think of a, uh, we call it multi-section, you know, in, in kind of the old vernacular, you may call it a double wide. Um, th- there's, there is some, some, uh, you know, some assembly required, let's say. Uh, so there, there's a little bit of work to do as far as mating the, the uh, both sections Um you know, there, there's going to be a little bit of internal work. You know, remember, these are going down freeway, moving down freeways, and there's there's bumps and a little bit of jostling and jolts. And and so you, you will have some some minor repairs that need to be done uh, when, when those are, you know, when those are installed and, and set up. Um, but but, you know, what sometimes on the manufactured housing side, what people forget is um, it, it, these are really a. You know, it's it's a full throated construction project to have a home um, fully set up. There's there's a lot of um, uh, j- just like you would prep a a site for a stick build home. Um, there's quite a bit of site prep required. Uh, there's in most cases um, there are piers uh, that need to be poured. There are footings. There's uh, there's the securing and fastening the tie down. Uh, there's, we call it the block level set. And then you have the, you know, the wrap, the wraparound perimeter in, you know, the vernacular in our space is skirting for that. Uh, and then you have all the additional, you know, items you have, you know, uh, connecting to all the utilities, um, all of the, uh, all the setup of, 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 you know, air, air conditioning unit, you'll have the, uh, the patios, the decks, uh, the, the awnings, uh, maybe you have garage, all the flat work involved. So there's there's quite a bit of on-site labor uh, and, and coordination, and frankly, a lot of different contractors. I mean, you really need to have, in some shape or form, a general contractor that's spearheading this, and you're kind of coordinating with a number of subs, much as you would with with the kind of foundation of of a stick built home. Yeah, it's a. Uh, seems like it's quite a departure from like the mobile home or the the double wide of of yesteryear. I've seen uh, some of this product a couple of years ago. I went down to the National Association of Home Builders show and saw some of the the manufactured product out like demoed in the parking lot. That's pretty phenomenal. Like very hard to, um, you know, not paying very close attention. You could very easily think you are uh, you're walking through what someone would consider a traditional stick built or or even a or even a custom home with some of the details that are are going into these properties. Um, what's driven the the evolution of like what manufactured you know may may have been in the 
the the heyday in the 80s and 90s versus what we're seeing in market today? I think you had, you know, in the 80s and 90s, what, what you had is as often as oftentimes is the case in in a, in a capitalist society um, or mar- free market. I think you probably had the pendulum just swing a little bit too far. Um, you know, I think the the incentives were probably a little bit misaligned for for a lot of the manufacturers of these. Um, I, I think there's there certainly needs to be um, when it's when it involves living space. There certainly needs to be a probably a sweet spot of regulation, right? I, I think oh, too much regulation, you add the cost uh, balloons out of control, but Really, no regulation can have certainly have its problems as well, and, and I think those were days where the regulation was certainly lower. Um, I think the uh, the what what the market demanded was probably a lower bar. Um, I will say that today, the manufactured homes today, as you as you referenced, you know, alluded to, uh, that they are they have just. They're they heads and shoulders above what the product that was you know, that was created in the in the '90s and early 2000s. I mean, you have you have really every finish and feature that you would have access to in an entry level home. And in most markets, you're talking you know entry level. That's that's code for you know three hundred to six hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it's it's this type of home and the finishes that you can expect. That is available today, really across the board, with every major manufactured housing uh, factory today. Um, and so, uh, I, I think the, the the I think the bar has been raised, both on the on the safety side, on the you know just kind of having a product that is going to last, it's, it's stable, but also um, also con- consumer you know tastes. Uh, and really, I think the industry has um, really, you know, met met the challenge of uh, met the moment of what consumers are looking for uh, today. And, and so, um, it, you know, it, it's a great option and it can compete with, you know, I, w- I would I would put it up with um, you know, the, the ability to compete, compete with uh, entry level housing across the spectrum, whether that's apartments or single family. Are there any are there any regional considerations for for manufactured? I'm kind of thinking through like weather, climate, natural disaster, like and like what what are any drivers there that influence where more adoption or opportunity lies? Yeah, I mean the first the first consideration is just logistics. You know, it, it's it's not cheap to to ship these things you know down the freeway. Um, and so there, there's a, a very, you know, hard cost to that. Um, you know, if you have a, if you have a manufactured home community in the state of Maine, you know, you don't want to be have you know, sourcing your homes out of Mississippi, Mississippi plant, right? That, that's just, that's not practical, um, from a cost perspective. So there certainly are regional, you, you want to understand who your regional factories are. And really, in almost every region of the country, you do have a factory within, you know, typically two to five hour drive. Um, there are some exceptions to that, but but uh, you know, generally, um, that said, I will say that there are I, there are hubs uh, in our industry of where these homes are built. 
Um, you know, the, the biggest hub in the country really is, is, uh, in Northern Indiana. Uh, Northern Indiana is kind of the hub for the RV industry. And as a result, you know, these are kind of, they're kind of sister, uh, you know, industries. And, and so the, the craftsmanship and the knowledge and the, the workforce required to build out RVs is very, very similar to manufactured houses. And so, um, for that reason, you have, you know, a, a good concentration there in Northern Indiana. So I would say that's the biggest hub. After that, you know, th- there are a couple others. Uh, there, there are some big ones in Texas. Uh, there are some big ones in, in Tennessee and in this other parts of the South. Uh, and then, and then there's kind of a smattering after that, really throughout, you know, throughout America. Um, but, but you typically, um, you typically will be able to find a factory that can meet your needs, you know, that can get a home to you with within a, you know, usually about a five to six hour drive. Sometimes it's further, but usually that's the that's the geographic reach. And outside of like the the expense and logistics of transporting a home further than five or six hours, it, am I right that there's some like inter- interstate regulation on like how far, like how many state lines you can cross or how far you can actually um, move manufactured uh, real estate? There can be a, lo- a lot of times it's um, it's it's state by state. Um, you know, what, one of the big challenges you get is there are wind zones and then there are temperature zones, you know, freeze zones. And so if you're in a zone, you know, they have it kind of the tier and I, you know, I forget the exact tiering, but it, it's kind of like zone one is kind of the sun belt and then zone two and then you know, zone, you know, zone three, you're up in, you know, the snow belt. And, you know, it's kind of a red flag if you're, if you're ordering a home in the snow belt from the, from a sun belt factory, you, you know, it's it, it typically just, it, it's not practical and, could it be done? It probably could be done, but it's, it's just, you rarely see it. Just the homes are built to different specs. And and so um, you certainly want to make sure that if you're new to the business, you want to really understand what are the specs required for your geography, both on the wind, you know, that, that includes the, uh, the, the weight load of the, the roofs among other, you know, areas, um, and just make sure you're in compliance of all those laws. There's a lot of them and, and the factories can help guide you through all that. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little about financing. I feel like that's one of the areas that's a little lesser understood in the manufactured space, especially for single family folks like, like myself. Um, so tell us about what financing options look like in manufactured. So um, I'll break this up into two types of manufactured homes. So the first type would be um, you buy a piece of land uh, and you have a home installed on that land. So that that would be considered, when you're going for a loan, you would have access to a conventional real estate uh, loan. Um, so that's, that's going to be much uh, easier. You're going to have better rates. Uh, the second type is where you are getting a loan on the home, but you don't actually own the land. And this is common in manufactured home communities where the operators will own the actual um, real estate. So they'll, they'll own the dirt, they'll own that site, they'll own the infrastructure. And then the resident will, will bring in a home and they will own the actual home. So there's a relationship there of, of, uh, of, of a land, land lease relationship. In that case, uh, the resident would have uh, what's called access to what's called chattel financing. Um, and so this is, uh, this is a different type of loan. It's not a real estate loan 
because there's no real estate that home can technically be moved. Seldomly is, but it can be moved. And so it's going to be a different suite of lenders. Those lenders are typically looking for a couple of things. They want an AM, an amortization period that's a little bit shorter. So you usually don't see 30 year. What's more common is probably 20. Sometimes you'll see up to 25, but I would say 15 to 25 is is uh, more common. The reason for that is the the useful life of a manufactured home um, is is typically a little bit shorter than it is for a single family home. Um, uh, and then and then also you don't have the real estate, which when you peel back the layers, you know a lot of the value increase on these homes um, comes on the actual real estate side. So uh, it's going to be a little bit shorter am. Uh, the rates are going to be a little higher. So typically you're seeing a 200 to 400 basis point um, premium on for the consumer on what they would see on a conventional, call it an FHA loan, uh, agency-backed loan. Again, the reason for that uh, is, you know, it's not technically real estate. It is private property. And, and so the, the liquidity pool is just a little bit, shallower, um, a little bit smaller. And as a result, you know, there's, there's a risk premium that the lenders will, will demand. So, you know, right now, if you're getting a 6% loan, you know, on, on your, on your single family on a 30 year AM, 95%, you know, leverage, um, you're probably getting about an eight to 9% um, financing, uh, probably 90% leverage. Uh, and probably, a, you know, you can go 15 up to 25 year AM on, on uh, manufactured housing. Who, who are the dominant players in that chattel space? The big players, uh, the biggest player would be, tw- would be 21st uh, Mortgage uh, and, and Triad. I, was, I think those two are probably the, the kind of 800 pound gorillas in the industry. Um, there are a number of others that are, that are kind of in that, that next, I'll put them in that next tier, um, you know, Cascade. Um, you know, Oxford, there, there are a number of other uh, uh, players. And then, you know, depending on where you are in the country, um, there are a lot of regional banks uh, that will that will finance. If you get into the kind of Mountain West states, uh, into the Pacific Northwest, Pacific you know, area, uh, very common to find regional banks that, that will finance. And, and sometimes they'll actually provide, you know, the best rates possible because they're you know, there, uh, there's kind of some, some mission-driven, uh, you know, motivation uh, with some of those banks as well for, for their communities. So, um, uh, you know, it really depends on where you are in the country. But I would say from a national perspective, uh, 21st Mortgage and, and Triad Financial Services are the, are the two big ones. We may have just gotten back from Gathering of Eagles, but we're not done with events for 2023 yet. This October, we're headed right back to Austin, Texas for Housing Wire Annual, and we want to see you there. We've got a power-packed agenda with content such as our Women of Influence speakers, peak performer playbooks, CEO playbooks, and more to propel your company forward, as well as a bunch of networking events. Because this event is open to real estate executives, mortgage title, and everyone in between, you really have the opportunity to network with people from all across the housing ecosystem. If you want to learn more about the event, or if you're already ready to get registered, head over to housingwire.com on the events tab and you can learn all about it. 
Not to mention, if you're an HW Plus member, you're going to get 50% off your ticket. So get registered for HW Plus and get registered for the event so we can see you out in Austin. Okay, so if you're taking the route where you're you're buying the manufactured house and it's located in a community where you're you're leasing your your land, you're going to have the chattel loan through one of the national players like Triad or Regional Bank, and then a a monthly lease payment to the the community owner, the 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 landowner. Is that is that the right structure? Like separated out. That's correct. So, so think of, think of living in a, let's just say a townhouse, right? In an HOA, you would be paying your mortgage on the townhouse, but then you would be paying separately your HOA fee um, and also uh, your property taxes and then your insurance and so forth. So the homeowners that live in a manufactured home community, they're going to be paying their mortgage and their insurance with that. But they're also going to be paying instead of their property taxes on the real estate and, and an HOA fee, they're just going to pay what's lumped into a site fee. Okay. So, and then on the the other option, which I think is pretty prevalent and common here in Texas, if someone buys land, be it half an acre or 50 acres and places a manufactured home on it, they'd have the option to access conventional financing potentially through Fannie or Freddie um, for the the land plus house. So it's treated very much like a, a traditional single family stick built home. Correct. And I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's the exact same program as what you see with a, a conventional uh, single family, but I know that there are programs that, that are mimic very closely uh, that, that type of a structure. Okay. Well, now you're you're giving me a, a, a tip to something I need to have the housing wire newsroom dig a little deeper into because I, I, I want to understand that now. And I, I should we should be reporting on that on their, that area. So you talked a little bit about useful life and uh, one of the promises of home ownership and the reason that so many folks consider it the American dream is the is the appreciation. So let's let's talk about what home appreciation and equity looks like in the manufactured ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's a great topic and a, a greatly misunderstood topic. So I think the conventional wisdom is that a mobile home or a manufactured home goes down in value. That's the conventional wisdom. And I would say that that is true in a vacuum. The problem is these homes... D- they're not, they're not placed in a vacuum. They're placed in on real estate um, that, that has value. And so what we've seen over the past you know, five years, there's been a couple of studies that have been released, and I can, I can try to dig these up and, and, and send these later. But uh, two, two large studies, they were kind of a five-year uh, or 10-year analysis. And this was even pre-COVID uh, that kind of controlled for that. And what they found is that really across every, actually every state in America, uh, the the lower 48, I think was the study, the value, the resale value of a manufactured home has gone up significantly. Uh, In fact, it's tracked nearly very tightly correlated to the appreciation in single family home values. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. When you, when you look at a manufactured home community, 
um, let's say you purchase a home and you bring it in, what really are you getting with that, with living there? Well, you have, you own the home. Um, so presumably you, you own it. You're going to try to take, you know, pretty good care of it um, and maintain it properly. So that's, that's kind of a given. But the next is, where is that location? You know, remember, manufactured housing communities were largely built in the 60s, 70s, 80s. They started to slow down in the 80s. By the 90s, it had, it had really almost come to a dead stop. And really, by the early 2000s, that was kind of it. NIMBYism yeah. took over. And it is, a, it is with great rare exception that you see a manufactured home community built today. Now, when they were issuing zoning in those years, they didn't give zoning for prime acreage. They gave zoning for, you know, two, three, five miles out of town. And what has happened with these metropolitan areas since the 60s, 70s, 80s? That dirt that was three, four, five, 10 miles out of town that was kind of out there and no one really cared about it, that's prime acreage today. Those are the best suburbs today. Those are the best school districts today. And so what you find is with a lot of these manufactured home communities, you're, you're aligned to the best schools, the school district in the market. You're in the best neighborhoods or you know across the street from some of the best neighborhoods in the market. If an operator is paying attention and they can go in and reinvest in those communities you know, get the amenities, kind of get the curbside appeal where it should be and maintain those, you start to see that, okay, um, that home that was purchased for, you know, 40000 or $50,000 10 years ago, I can now see how that can resale for 100000 or $120,000, which is absolutely happening all over America right now in manufactured housing. All right. So applying some of this historical knowledge and data to, to your strategy at Haven Park, give, give us a glimpse into the, the, the operating strategy and what you're building. So it starts with a two-way street of respect. And, and, and really, I think we first have to recognize that we cannot um, – I don't think anybody wants a kind of, quote, trailer park. You know, I don't think anyone really wants that. The city doesn't want it. Administrators don't want it. Politicians don't want it. The neighbors across the street don't want it. I don't really think investors want it. Um, and I don't think our residents want it. Really, the name of the game is we want quality. We want um, we want the best quality, but we still want it to be affordable and attainable for the residents. And, and so the approach we've taken is it's a two-way street. We are going to do our level best as operators to reinvigorate these communities. A lot of times we purchase them from uh, from operators who, you know, maybe they built them 30, 40, 50 years ago. Maybe they inherited it from their, their, their parents or their grandparents. And, you know, they just don't have, they're not set up to do the ongoing capital improvements. They don't have a CapEx budget. You know, all they know is, Hey, we have a little cash flow and we use that to live on. Um, and, and so, you know, the the infrastructure, uh, it has a useful life. It comes to an end. You've got to reinvigorate these properties. You've got to put money back into these properties to continue to make them viable for, for the future. And here's the good news. When we do that as, as on our side as operators, 
um, that also benefits the residents. And, and we, we constantly remind our residents of that. Look, um, we're going to make some improvements here. Um, we're going to have to recoup some of those costs in terms of, you know, kind of moving, moving those rents. Um, you know, we try to do it in, in a moderated way, but you are going to see some increase to rents. But look, there's a transfer of value to you. When it comes time for you to move out of this community or sell your home, some life event changes, change in job, you know, maybe you're going to retire, moving into a nursing home, whatever the case may be, um, when that day comes, you're going to see some accrued equity, significant accrued equity that will come back to you when you sell that home. And so, you know, our, our really our mission is to provide attainable housing uh, for, we call it responsible residents across America. We feel like, you know, we, ex- we, ex- we try to be responsible, conscious, you know, concerned operators that are doing the right thing. And we expect our residents to do the same. And the reason for that, and what you find is residents want that. Residents want someone who's going to uh, enforce the rules. They don't want to open their door when they leave for work and see their neighbor's lawn overgrown. It's three feet and there's four tires on the front. They don't want to see that. They want to see some discipline. They want to see some enforced rules. They want to see some improvements. And you find that in most cases, they see how that will help uh, help the value of their home. So that's that's kind of at a very high level. Um, that That's really kind of our mission and, and the opportunity that we see in the space right now. All right. So you're identifying um, mobile home communities, trailer parks, uh, and making acquisitions and, and, ch- and changing them into communities that have continued reinvestment and potentially a place where families might raise their kids where they might not have felt comfortable in the past. Yeah. And there's varying degrees of that. A lot of the communities we buy, they've already been run, maintained. Okay. So, perfor- yeah, so like just performing and non-performing, like different, different kind of asset assets, but like an acquisition driven strategy, are you doing any like de novo, like ground up community development or is this all focused on like acquire and improve? Yep. Right now we are focused exclusively on acquire and and improve. Um, The one caveat to that is we do uh, from time to time, we do have the opportunity to do what we call expansion. So you may find a, a property that was initially zoned and entitled for three phases. The owner built out the first two phases for whatever reason, never got to that third phase. And we find that we can pretty, you know, in most cases, pretty relatively easily go down and get those, uh, get those entitlements, uh, get the, uh, get those permits kind of re, you know, reissued. Um, And we have done some expansions and we will continue to do those. Interesting. So when, all right, so let's, let's talk about like when properties change hands, like how, like are there, are, Realtors coming in and listing properties inside of Haven Park communities. Is that something that's managed at the community level? Like how does, how does the, the transfer and sale of properties happen? And properties, you're saying uh, the actual homes? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, actual homes. So not using properties. I'm separating. I know it's land lease and home, but transfer of the, of the, of the manufactured home. It really completely depends on the market. Um, there, there are just there. There's a very different sales culture, I'll call it, or, or marketing culture in different parts of the country for manufactured housing. Pocket in pockets of the Midwest, there are certain pockets where it's 
extremely unusual to have a realtor involved in selling the home. And really, it comes down to kind of a for sale by owner efforts uh, by that individual. Um, you know, a lot of operators, and, and, and this is something we're looking at, a lot of operators will offer to uh, help the resident kind of market that home and, and, and really kind of act as the de facto uh, realtor to help them sell their home if, if the time's ready. Other parts of the country, it's really no different than selling a stick-built home. You know, we have we have some communities in in kind of the inland uh, inland Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, one one community comes to mind in in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where I mean, realtors every home that's sold is brokered by a realtor, and they're listed on the MLS. I mean, it's it's literally no different than than how a home is sold uh, down the street in a, in a subdivision. So um, it, it really, your, your mileage will vary by, by geography on that one. So the manufactured housing space is getting more and more attention right now because of the affordability factor. And uh, I recently received an invitation to a manufactured housing um, presentation like on the on the on the lawn in Washington DC um, I think there's some other cities that are like trying to attract attention to manufactured so how is manufactured uh, being talked about and considered in the affordable housing landscape and potentially a solve to some of this inventory crisis that is um, you know that's weighing on a lot of uh, first time and and repeat home buyers well I think I think there are two uh, two extremely attractive points that manufactured housing can bring to that conversation. Um, the first is obviously the affordability. Um, and there's a lot of analyses. Some people like to look at it as square footage. I'll just give you an example. The average square footage, we, we brought in about a thousand homes uh, across our portfolio this year. And those are, you know, full installation. You know, we'll install those and we'll sell most of those. We'll lease some of those as well. But the average home that we brought in is about 1,200 square feet. Um, they will range from 900 all the way up to probably 2,000 on the largest ones. But call it a, a 1,200 square foot, three bed, two bath unit. Um, that has a price point of about $75,000 in most of our markets. Uh, and so... You know, you, whether you break that down into square footage or it's just, you know, a three bed, two, two bed, you know, three bed, two bed, that is highly affordable and, and, uh, and, and highly attainable. The second piece is around uh, speed because manufactured housing by definition can be scaled much quicker. Um, one of the impressive things about this industry is. You know, you go talk to the guys at um, Champion or Clayton or, you know, um, any number of these, you know, Cabco, any number of these manufacturers, when they see the demand, they're very good at repurposing and reopening, you know, or, or opening new factories. I mean, it's astonishing the speed at which they can get these up and operating. And, and you know, most of these factories – they can crank out, you know, 10, 20 floors a day. Uh, and, and so um, you, you have the ability to scale very, very quickly with manufactured housing. 
I mean, if if you had a 500 site development um, in most parts of the country right now, logistically, you could have a home installed on every site uh, probably within about a nine month period. Uh, so the ability to scale is is really unprecedented. It's it's really untouched from any other type of mainstream housing. So in the communities that you are acquiring and operating, um, are there many uh, residents that are like replacing aged out uh, end of end of life assets with with new assets from the from the Clayton homes of the world, or is it typically kind of? You know, you, you keep the the manufactured house on the plot for forever, and maybe make some improvements over time. Um, how, how does that kind of end of life process work? Yeah, it's it's a great question. You know, and and it, and it really comes down to the owner and how they maintain that property, that home. Um, most of these homes, the, the frame, the actual infrastructure of the home, it can last a very long time. Uh, now, what what I do see in a lot of markets, um, um, you know, a lot of our product is in in kind of the you know some of the Mountain West markets, and, and so I'll use that as a, as a as a reference point. We see this a lot. You'll see homes that were built in the '70s and '80s that are just completely gutted and and really you know, completely remodeled on the inside, uh, all, you know, all new finishes, and they are nice. I mean, they do a very, very good job on the interior finishes. I mean, you may have seen some of these. Yeah, it's it's almost like a, like a little clickbait. But there's, you know, from time to time you'll see like a you know, record record sale for a trailer being sold in Malibu Beach. I saw that. I've seen that one. Doesn't like Brad Pitt have a house there or something? It's some. It's some. It's, it's kind of nuts. Well, it's crazy. But but you look at some of those homes, and you can you can go to Malibu um, and to. Yeah you know, other, other areas in Southern California and other, you know, um, the Bay area. And some of these homes are 1980s models that have just been totally remodeled. And sure enough, they're, they're being sold for a million, half a million, 2 million, you know, and up. So really it's, but here's, here's kind of the data um, that, that we've looked at. And we, you know, we, we, we certainly respect and evaluate the data from, you know, the, the REITs in our space, you know, they're just the great operators. Um, and then we've crunched our own data as well. And we find that the, the average home will stay in our community 45 to 50 years. Uh, that, that's kind of the average. And so we'll, we'll use that as a proxy for, you know, if a home is well-maintained, it's probably about a 50-year useful life. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking as we talk, like there's a waterfront manufactured home community in my, in my hometown in Florida. And I just like pulled up on, on Zillow and these are all, you know, three or 400 K refreshed kitchens. Like it's not the, um, it's not the trailer park that people might have in their minds. No. And they're, and they're nice. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to live there? Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. Uh, so do you have competitors who are, who are taking like the straight, like, are there new communities popping up and like, how does that like inventory or dynamic kind of compare to, to what you're doing at, um, at Haven Park? Yes. There are some brave souls out there who are doing greenfield development. Why do you say that? Why, why do you say brave souls? Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it is a very, it, it's, it's a tough road. It's a tough road to go down. Um, you are facing tremendous nimbyism pressure. Uh, and, and then once, once you get that, 
you do have, you know, really a whole host of other hurdles to go through. There's, you know, to, to, and usually revolving around the utilities. That, that's typically where you have the biggest sticking points. But um, the amount of, of individuals required to kind of coordinate and all come together, and it's over an extended period of time, you know, these, these greenfield developments, I mean, it's, it's, it's typically start to end. I mean, two years is smoking. I mean, that's very fast. Uh, a lot of these are three, four, five years to finally get to a point where you can start to move in homes. And, and then there are capital constraints. There are financing constraints. There are, you know, just a lot of challenges. And so um, it's, it's a different model than, than typically most of kind of, the in, you know, most of us, what we're doing is, is manufactured housing investors. But um, there are some, some groups that are doing a just great job at this. And, and we're, we are seeing for the first time in a long time, you know, probably a couple of decades, uh, we are starting to see a, a, I won't say it's significant, but it's not, ins- it's not an insignificant amount of new uh, developments for manufactured ha- um, home communities. So um, it, it's definitely on the uptick, uh, trending in the right direction. You see it more in areas where there's typically lower barriers on, on the zoning or on the development front. There's, there tend to be more in Texas, um, uh, whereas, you know, some markets that are just the red tape is very, very difficult and land is extremely expensive. You just, you, you see it less often. I mean, even I'm, I'm here in Dallas and just this past week, uh, Dallas voted to, to block short-term rentals in a, in a big part of the city knocked out about a, you know, a thousand SFRs from STRs from the, uh, from inventory. Uh, so I, and I, I, you know, that was, that was neighborhood pressure. That was, that was a little, you know, a flavor of, of NIMBYism, but like one of the conversations on any type of real estate regulation is, is tax base. So like, is there a, is there a, is there an attractive like municipal tax base for, for, uh, enabling and, um, uh, uh, zoning, like re- zoning considerations on, on the, on the manufactured community side? I think that's a that's probably a debatable point, depending on who you're talking to in the industry. I I think my my experience, and I and I would I would I would suggest that probably you know this is the case more often than not. There they can be tax inefficient for these municipalities. I mean, if a municipality can can rather than get you know 100 acres with manufactured housing on, have that be mixed use and or apartments. Um, or even a single-family subdivision, they're probably going to have a bear, bigger revenue base, and I think that's part of the problem. the The reason why I think you're starting to see some developments actually, you know, happen is just this enormous pressure on. Hey, there's nowhere to live. I mean, there, there's a group, um, you know, a, a group of you know, great operator uh, up in Bozeman, Montana. They're doing a development in Bozeman, Montana, and. I mean, holy smokes, the, the, an entry-level home in Bozeman is pushing a million dollars. Um, you know, a, a one-bedroom is $2,500 to rent. And, and there's literally nowhere to live, nowhere to move. And so it got to the point where the pressure was so immense that, you know, the county finally said, all right, we'll do this. And so, um, you know, I, I think at some point, you know, the, the, 
our elected officials are always looking at pain points. You know, when the pain of pressure from no affordable housing becomes greater than, hey, maybe we take a little bit of a haircut on tax. When that happens, I think that's where you start to see you know, a little more traction on development. I mean, when you have communities like Bozeman, where the average home price is shifted toward a, towards a million, then like suddenly you're you're pricing out the ability for a functioning economy. You don't have the ability for public service workers or hospitality workers or any type of service industry period to like live in driving distance of the, of, of the businesses and the people who, who want these services. I mean, that's something that I think that's plagued parts of California for, for years. In the business community, I mean, I, I have found the business community oftentimes is, is championing these developments. They want, they want workers. They need like, yeah, they want a place for their workers to live. All right. Really interesting. And so, so one final question, Robbie. So as I'm like, hearing more about the business model and like the, the pros and cons versus like the acquisition strategy versus Greenfield. It's kind of like pointing toward like you can run Haven Park kind of like a traditional like real estate private equity strategy. So you're stepping right into like cash flowing communities and are able to use use leverage in, in the process. Is that is that kind of the, the the playbook you run, like real estate private equity as you as you build this business? Yeah. I mean that's that's a kind of tried and tested model. Um you know, we're we're not we are not a private equity shop, um, but but we're certainly, you know, we're we do take private capital and and you know that is the that is the plan. Our our model is really buy, you know, purchase uh, communities that are that are well located. That's that's the big thing. You know, is it a desirable place to live? Is it a desirable um, school district? And then once we see it's worth it, we'll pour in a lot of capital in the first few years and on an ongoing basis to kind of raise the the profile and quality of that, the community. And then for us, it's it's a very long term hold. You know, these are these are uh, for, for most of our portfolio. These are this is a multi decade hold. Uh, kind of a strategy. Uh, really interesting. Robbie, thanks for giving us so much insight into the, the manufactured housing space and, and what you're building at Haven Park. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, appreciate it, Clayton. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for Housing Wire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas. 